0: Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Deborah Levison. Deborah is an author and publicist. Her life has two parts. The first in Canada, where she attended University of Toronto and the Royal Conservatory of Music, and the second in Connecticut, where she lives with three children, two doodles, and one husband. Her first book, an acclaimed nonfiction called The Crate, is a true crime story with echoes of the Holocaust. Reviewers called it gorgeous and poetic, heart-wrenching and a brilliant story. The book won seven literary awards. Her debut novel, A Nest of Snakes, published in October, is part thriller, part courtroom drama based on real life abuse at elite New New England private schools. Monster Librarian hails a nest of snakes as one of the fall's most talked-about novels. So welcome, Debbie. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Merrill. It's a pleasure. First, I I want to just alert our listeners uh, that your debut novel, A Nest of Snakes, and this discussion, is for a mature audience dealing with the. Per- Plexing problem of child sexual abuse. Reviewers have called your book a roller coaster ride of surprising twists leading to a staggering climax and an absolutely perfect ending. Can you tell us a bit about the storyline for those who have not yet read it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I would love to. So It starts with the introduction of a very broken man named Brandon, um, who's suffering from clear signs of post-traumatic stress. So he has chronic depression, nightmares, agoraphobia. And he lives in this fictional village here in Connecticut, um, a village called Summer's Pond, where he's basically barricaded himself into a mansion. And he's surrounded by extravagant, bizarre purchases from the internet, and he really only has his housekeeper and her son for company. Um, His his only contact with the outside world is through shopping online um, and a weekly session with his psychiatrist. And because he's really self-isolated himself um, and has spent years and years on the computer he's really become something of a computer whiz and so he spends a lot of time trolling these very clandestine chat rooms hunting for pedophiles so right away the reader suspects abuse um, and it becomes clear that in his years of therapy, Brendan has been talking to a psychiatrist, but he's never really divulged the deepest source of his trauma. And then in the story, he's finally pushed to his breaking point and he takes this step that he's just avoided for decades, which is going public with his story. And he teams up with a young sympathetic attorney named Dylan, and decides to file a lawsuit against this very elite New England public school that he attended as a boy. And Dylan warns him that testifying would mean dredging up all these very painful memories that he would rather keep buried. And so the second half of the book is the courtroom um, setting where he testifies and where witnesses testify Um, And he goes up against, uh, you know, the judicial system to try to to get justice for himself. Um, And it's about all the secrets that emerged during the trial, and even some secrets that Brendan didn't know about himself. Yeah,
0: you, there's really so much to unpack here, um, and and so many levels to this story. Uh, First, you let me ask you, you take on a, a very, very difficult and painful subject. What What made you want to write this book?
1: Well, it's loosely based on real life events, believe it or not. So wow. a few oh, years really? ago,
0: <laughs> I was wondering about that. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it is. Um, so a few years ago, I became aware of a bunch of these lawsuits. There was a whole spate of lawsuits and um, I started looking into them. I started reading the actual complaints, which were all public record. And honestly, Merrill, I could not believe what I was reading. So these middle-aged men had come forward to sue the private schools, the boarding schools they'd attended back in the 80s. And the lawsuits that I was reading were based in Connecticut. Um, and... I was just struck by how vulnerable these these boys were. They were so young, they were so innocent and they were really preyed on. Um, and, and again, I was just horrified by how many adults were complicit in the abuse. So in the lawsuits, the boys or, or rather the men alleged that everybody knew what was happening, that everyone from the headmaster to the staff all the way down to the janitor were participating in the abuse. And then all the uh, all the other people at the school, everyone you, you knew from the administration to the nurse uh, and all the other students, everyone was aware of what was happening to some of these victims. And yet no one reported the abuse. No one protected these boys in any way. And I just thought this was the most important story to to tell, to shine a light on. Um, and so I started doing research. And and I, I mean, if you thought that the abuse happened um, only decades ago and and has sort of stopped now, that's what I thought, and I was wrong. Um, And in fact, the abuse is still happening today, and it's definitely not limited to New England in any way. So I found cases from New York and New Hampshire and Toronto, where I'm from, um, all the way around the world, South Africa, Australia, and uh, basically anywhere where you have a cloistered private school setting, um, the abuse was taking place.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, as a a former uh, school district administrator, I have the responsibility of dealing with sexual abuse and sexual harassment allegations. But the scenario and persistent abuse you describe is really extremely disturbing uh, beyond the pale. And it's mind boggling um, that... uh, you say the administrators, uh, some of them knew and, and but didn't do anything. But it seemed that that Brendan's parents didn't have a clue of, of what was going on for so many years. I mean, how how is is that typical? Is that possible? Well, um,
1: you know, I tried to set it up to make it plausible that his parents, who were um, suddenly wealthy, suddenly very successful, under a lot of pressure, professionally, uh, his father anyway, um, and very eager to see their son succeed, and their definition of success was for him to... Get into an Ivy League school. So, you know, I tried to set up these circumstances that the father was distant with his own um, sudden professional success, the mother was distant because now she found herself. Uh, becoming the socialite. So she had all of these social obligations and they really farmed him out to a boarding school. And, you know, it it may be a little bit far-fetched, but I'm sure that did happen in these very prestigious schools where um, there was that pressure to succeed on the boys and the schools were uh, feeder systems into the elite colleges um, and the Ivy League system. And, um, and there was that isolation of the distance between and then don't forget, we're talking about the 80s, where the kids didn't have cell phones, there was no internet, there was no email and, and, um, you know, there were maybe some open telephone hours where the kids could call home on a landline, uh, maybe, and um, so there wasn't that open channel of communication to start with.
0: Yeah, um, I I want to talk to you a, a little bit uh, more about your research, um, because it seems like you you did a tremendous uh, amount of research on many different levels, um, for this book, and and you talked about all the the cases that you you studied and and went through. I'm uh, your first book, which we're gonna get to in a little while, the crate. Is nonfiction? Um why did you choose to uh, fictionalize this story and not, you know, base it um, make it make it a a nonfiction book?
1: Um, well, that's a very good question. So with the first book, which um hopefully we'll get to talk about a little bit later, but with the first book, it was my family's story. And it was my story. So I could write about it authoritatively. Right. Um, and and also because I was telling stories in that book that um, were true and that I felt very strongly had to be preserved. I was telling the story of a murder victim mm. who no longer had her own voice. And I wanted to tell her story. And I was telling my parents' stories from the Holocaust. So... Um, so those were true stories that obviously could not be changed, could not be, um, elaborated on in any way, and so I wanted to make that book nonfiction. With A Nest of Snakes, I really relied on imagination. Um, I've never had any personal experience with, with abuse, with physical or sexual abuse, thank God. Um... And so it was imagination, it was made up events, although they were based on truth. And I also wanted to give myself that literary license to fictionalize because that gave me the ability to add in all these interesting characters and plot lines and events that maybe were a little bit um, more dramatic and make it a real thriller in that regard. And looking back, on the first book, the crate, um, I'm not sure if I would have made the same decision to non to, to keep it nonfiction because now that I'm doing a lot of speaking gigs about the first book, and uh, I can give myself the leeway to talk more, especially about the Holocaust, I realize that if I had added in. A lot more detail and a lot more context about the Holocaust itself. It would have been even a more powerful book um, because in my speaking, I get to add all the the new information or, or the information that I learned since writing, and I think that makes it just so much more um, just so much more compelling. But with mm-hmm. the Nest of Snakes, I, I wanted to keep it a thriller, a real
0: thriller. Okay. All right that 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 makes sense. Uh, you mentioned um going through all the all these court cases. I'm curious uh what else your research involved and in, and how long it, it did you spend researching this? So
1: besides reading a bunch of lawsuits and besides, you know, obviously there's a lot of information available online. Um, There are also a lot of personal testimonies of victims, especially from the United Kingdom. I found a lot of YouTube videos, documentaries. um, And I guess that's because there are so many more boarding schools in the UK. Um, And so... Uh, I, I really it was really an amalgamation of a lot of these different stories and cases that I was reading about. and um and again, just to just to emphasize <laughs> everything that I was reading was not limited to the 1980s or the 90s or the early 2000s. And in fact, there was um, a big breaking news story just this past summer where the crown prince and the crown princess of Denmark actually pulled their 16-year-old son, Prince Christian, out of his very elite boarding school because there were all these allegations of physical and sexual abuse and the leadership turned a blind eye. So exactly what I had already written in my book. And then just a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you heard this, Meryl, but just a couple of weeks ago, Prince William and Kate... Pulled George and Charlotte out of their private boarding school. Their, their, sorry, their their private school, um, because a teacher there had admitted to decimating all of these lewd child images around the world, and there was a huge scandal at that school. And that just happened.
0: So obviously, uh, <laughs> a child sexual abuse is is still a huge problem um, throughout the world um I know you do not consider yourself to be an expert uh, on the topic but I wonder if you have any um ideas about uh, what what's the solution I mean it doesn't seem possible it seems it's shocking to me that this this is still going on and on and on, you know, in the, in the, the New York public schools, we have, we have mandated reporters and we have um, policies and procedures in place. Um, you know, I, I, I noticed one of, when I was dealing with this, one of the problems is of course, that, that children don't, don't talk and are embarrassed to talk, but, but do you have any thoughts about a solution for <laughs>
1: Well, like you said, I'm no expert, um, but as far as I can see, or as 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 much as here's what I think that um, two things. Number one, we should hand out a guidebook to every prospective parent that starts with a parent sitting down with their child and saying to their to their child, boy or girl, that. There's nothing you can tell me that will make me not love you, and you have to feel free to tell me everything that happens in your life. Um, Nothing that happens will make me turn away from you. I will always be there to support you, and nothing that happens to you will scare me away. I will never be uh, in danger because of something someone does or says to you. So I think there's got to be that open channel of communication from parents to children, children to parents. And then transparency in all our institutions has to be mandated. And just telling the stories, just continuing to tell the stories of, um, of victims, which is actually, you know, one of my motivations for writing this book. I really... Uh, Maybe a little naively, but I really felt that if I wrote the story, maybe there would be some reader out there who would read the book and feel like it was some catalyst for that reader to tell his or her own story of abuse, where maybe before they felt they couldn't come forward, maybe they would take some sort of courage from this book and come forward themselves. And it's the same idea with telling stories from the Holocaust, that we have to keep telling the stories, preserving the stories, believing the stories, not denying. So it is it is kind of a similar idea.
0: Right, we're g- we're going to get to the Holocaust in a minute. I just want to ask you about your, your, your writing process for uh, A Nest of Snakes. You write about a very difficult a delicate, agonizing problem. I, I'm wondering, uh, what was it like for you? Was it difficult to write? Did you write every day for a certain number of hours? Um, was it emotionally draining? Um, how long uh, did it take you to, to finish this book? um a lot so of the,
1: questions <laughs> yeah. so it was shorter the process was shorter than my first book um maybe it took a year and a half to write the whole thing um i knew i knew the twist at the end i knew the ending and i knew the beginning and um and i knew some of the plot points and it was just a matter of connecting them in a plausible way and you know filling in all the blanks Um, and it, it, I mean, it was difficult to write in that, yes, it's a very sensitive subject, and so I felt like I was walking a fine line, because on the one hand, I didn't want it to read like a guide for pedophiles, you know, I didn't want to be making it so graphic, um, also because I felt like I had to tone down the abuse to make it palatable for readers. I didn't want to turn the readers off. And I also thought that I couldn't I couldn't tell the abuse um, to the extent that it truly happened because I didn't think anybody would believe it. So I know you read the book, and um believe it or not, the abuse scenes really are, toned down the truth was
0: i mean that's that is mind-boggling to me it is it is the the real
1: life events were so much worse and so i really tried to suggest what was happening rather than describe um you know I, i wanted to leave it up to the reader's imagination a little bit and i just wanted to give my main character brendan his dignity so I, I really tried to um, to be a little subtle in terms of the abuse.
0: Wow, wow! I I I found it um, so very very compelling, um, really heartbreaking. Um, but I, you know, I think uh, you you do a service by shining a light on this. And I think maybe we do, you know, it seemed to me that we used to, there used to be more of a dialogue about it. We used to be, be talking about it more. I don't know, maybe that's because I was working in the schools. I'm really not sure. Um, You don't, do you agree? You don't hear that much about it anymore? Really don't. You really don't. I
1: mean, I can only hope it's because reporting is better and people are maybe on better behavior because they know that they're under a microscope more um, and because communication, as I said, is um, is so instant now. And of course, we have the Me Too movement, which has, I think, made a huge change in, in the culture um, of reporting because now victims can you know, they have all these channels for reporting, they have the courts, and they have the media, and they have uh, social media, so they can tell their stories. And it's, you know, there's um, there's this snowball effect where, you know, one victim comes forward, then another and another, and soon so many are coming forward to tell their stories, which is a good thing.
0: Yeah, that, yeah, yes, it is a good thing. And I think adults are more courageous. But you're, you know, you're really writing about children. And I think it's incredibly difficult. And as you said, and you certainly indicate in the book, and as you said before, there, there's, there's a feeling of shame associated with it, you know, and you can, like, what did I do to, to deserve this? And I think, you know, kids often can be embarrassed to come forward.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: All right, so I want to switch gears now and ask you to give us a brief summary about your first book, The Crate.
1: I'd love to. So The Crate was um, an absolutely tragic and gruesome story. It started with a phone call back in 2010, my brother called me to say that he had discovered a wooden crate that was nailed tightly shut and shoved up underneath the floor of our family lake house in Canada. Um, Since the 70s, our family had 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 this cottage in this beautiful area of, of Ontario, about two hours north of Toronto, Um, where my parents had built this little cabin that was a sanctuary where I spent every summer of my life since I was seven years old. And here's my brother saying that he had found a crate. And when the crate was opened, it was the most grisly thing you could ever imagine, literally. And, um, and so this discovery really rocked my family. So my husband and I were completely freaked out. We were already living in Connecticut, of course, by that point. Um, we had three fairly young children that we wanted to protect from the violence of the whole situation. My brother became the primary murder suspect. Oh, and, and it was in all the media. It was headlines in newspapers and features and glossy magazines and television crews showed up on our private property to film. And so we felt very, very violated. And we didn't know if we had been targeted in some way. So the whole situation was, was horrible. And the worst part was that my parents, who were elderly by then, they were in their 80s, Um, they were really traumatized because they never expected to have to face this kind of human evil again in their lives. Um, As you mentioned, so they had survived the Holocaust and to have something this heinous happen right in the one place in the world where they felt the safest, it was really their refuge there. Um, It was just traumatic. And so I wrote the book, um, you know, and I was very much in my own head at the beginning, you know, how does this affect me and my family until we, until an autopsy identified an actual victim, a young mother. And and then I suddenly realized, okay, well, we're not the victims. And this poor young woman um, has a family who's grieving and and then i decided that i could maybe tell her story that she no longer had a voice of her own and that i could tell her story and then when i started writing i realized that for readers to really understand the impact of this crime on my family they had to know the history of my family and my parents holocaust stories so that that's how it sort of it came about and ended up being a story um intertwining a crime and investigation and trial, and looping together with my parents' histories and my my grandparents and other relatives' histories in the Holocaust,
0: so you know, as you said you you are you're a child of two Holocaust survivors. Um obviously, you know, we can see the the connection um with with the crate i'm i'm wondering if that influenced you in any way when when writing a nest of snakes
1: i think it definitely did um i'm still at this point figuring out how trauma can impact a person's life how the effects of past trauma even if it was decades ago the way it was for my parents how it can send out ripples for generations to come um, and I guess I'm drawn to writing about events like that and, um, and drawn to writing about how events can trigger us to dredge up these memories that we would rather keep buried. So all of that is sort of relevant in A Nest of Snakes. And then the other thing was, um, it was interesting about how I created the character of Brendan. So when I grew up, Obviously, I had my parents who were Holocaust survivors, but also this big circle of Hungarian Jewish families my parents were friends with. um, And by and large, most of their friends were Holocaust survivors. So I grew up knowing a lot of survivors. And for the most part, they were quote unquote, living normal lives um they had families they had children they had maybe fulfilling professional careers so they were quote unquote normal um even though they had experienced the most horrific trauma when they were young and i started thinking okay so that's one possibility but what if there's someone on the other end of the spectrum someone who experienced trauma but was never able to process it was really stuck in that trauma um psychologically speaking and so that's sort of how i developed the character of brendan and um and he i, I think he's just a very he's a very interesting character in terms of uh, his progression from from being stuck in this trauma at the beginning and then going through this journey of healing as the book goes on
0: so uh, as a child of Holocaust survivors, do you um, feel uh, uh, I think we're f- do you feel a special responsibility, certainly, about uh, writing about Holocaust survivors and and the impact on their families, but also uh, of the impact of trauma on others as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's still, it's a subject that really, um, I mean, obviously it's a very personal, it's a very personal topic for me and it's a very intimate one, but it's also one that I just find very interesting in in the larger sense about how trauma can um, affect people, you know, so much later in life. And this whole idea of these long buried memories being dredged up by some triggering events. Um, I'm just very intrigued by that. And so those, you know, those themes, so even though The Crate is non-fiction and A Nest of Snakes is fiction, I think a lot of the themes of the two books really overlap. So, you know, about these these old memories, these painful memories, and, and then, you know, also the theme of how incredibly evil people can be—you know, just of the the evil acts that people are, are capable of perpetrating. Um, you know, they about how people just have this atavistic side of human nature, um, and um, and as as I said, the effects of trauma later in life, and also the effects of guilt. How guilt can just cripple people and um and in in the crate you know part of that is my guilt for uh and i think i'm not i'm definitely not alone in that as a child of survivors i think many children feel guilty uh that we're living you know very nice uncomplicated normal safe privileged lives and look what our parents had to go through so um, the effects of guilt, for sure, is a big theme in both books.
0: Okay, uh, let's talk a little bit about the titles. Uh, I think the we 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 understand the the crate, um, and I mean I obviously understand both of them. But for for our listeners, if you want to elaborate on that a little more, or and if you want to tell us uh, why the title. A nest of snakes.
1: Yeah. I
0: mean, when I first <laughs> saw that title, I was really—I have to admit—I was really shocked by it. But I certainly understood it after I—I I read the book. But but why did you choose that particular title? Um, well. It came up because,
1: so back when I was researching, back when I first became aware of this spate of lawsuits, um, there was a lot of media coverage when the lawsuits were filed. And I remember reading this New York Daily News article where the headline was this big, black, glaring headline that said, A nest of pedophiles Ah. and And like, that was just shocking to me. And then I don't know if you remember a few years later or a few years ago now, actually, um, when I was just finishing up writing the book, if you remember, there was an aide to the Trump administration who called the White House a nest of vipers.
0: Yes, I do remember.
1: (laughs) Yes, I do. And I just thought that was such powerful imagery, you know, a nest of pedophiles, a nest of vipers. And then I just kind of extrapolated a nest of snakes from those two ideas, but also um, because I was thinking so much about Freud. You know, I have this psychiatrist character who figures very prominently in the story. And so I've been thinking, and also I have a background in psychology.
0: So well, I can was. but when I was reading the book, I thought maybe you were a lawyer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not a lawyer, but I did major in psychology. So, uh-huh. um, so I was thinking a lot about Freud and how, you know, he obviously considered snakes um, phallic symbols. And, um, and also how throughout history, we've, we've had monsters of of all kinds from all cultures in legends, and these monsters all have very uh, serpentine qualities. And that's something else I talk about in the book. So um, monsters themselves, like dragons, you know, they have these very snake-like qualities to them. And, um, and so I just thought that would be such a good title, you know, with the phallic symbolism and the monster symbolism. And I was really happy when my publisher decided to keep that title. Um, Ironically, and and when I got the uh, cover, the cover art, the illustration for the cover, I was just so thrilled. I thought it was such an eye-catching um, cover really is, with the big but... snake right well ironically i'm seeing all of these these people especially women saying oh i could never read a book about snakes or oh i can't oh, look at this no. cover and and really there are no snakes in the book you know maybe a paragraph here and at the beginning um, but um the book is really not about snakes it's just a metaphor you
0: should and... have called it not about snakes. <laughs> Exactly. Again, it would have been a nest of snakes. Berlin, not really about
1: snakes. Not about snakes. No actual snakes. But, um, and then with the crate, yeah, so the crate obviously is literal in that there was an actual crate that the, you know, that was, um, that was a pivotal part of the story. But it's also figurative in that we lifted the lid on all of these painful memories that came pouring out. So, right. yeah, so it is also figurative that in that.
0: Metaphor as well. Um, so wh- I'm curious, um, wh- other than the people who don't want to read it because um, the cover has snakes on it, um, what, what kind of reaction have, have you been getting from readers?
1: Yeah, to- it, the book poo, poo poo poo. It's been really good. It's been really good. The reviews have been wonderful. I just got a glowing review in the New York Journal of Books. Uh, the Jerusalem Post did a review that called it exquisitely written. I, I mean, I, I'm smiling, I'm embarrassed, but I'm smiling at the same time. So, yeah, I mean, the reviews have been really good. Um, But I I know it's difficult subject matter. I know it's not for everyone, um, especially for people who who might have a personal uh, reason for not wanting to read about this subject matter.
0: Who Who do you think the audience is for the book?
1: I mean... It really is a thriller, too. And as I said, it is pretty subtle, I think. So um, I think anyone who likes a thriller, anyone who likes an emotional story, uh, anyone who likes stories from the 80s and about boarding schools. And I know that's a very sort of popular setting for for stories and for movies, in case there's anyone in the movie industry listening. <laughs> but um yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's just a, a good read that, that people who enjoy books in general will like.
0: So, so Debbie, uh, where can readers uh, find you uh, and A Nest of Snakes and the Crate as well?
1: Yeah, well, my my website is just my name, Debbie Levison, D E B B I E L E V I S O N dot com. And the buy links are on there. Um and they're on Amazon and bookstores um, and other you know other platforms, kobo, wherever wherever books are sold, <laughs> you can find it libraries too. And obviously, if um if it's a little too new, if a library or a bookstore doesn't have it yet, they can always order
0: it. right, right. so so what's next for you? I think another thriller.
1: I think yeah. so. I, I started um I started a new one. I have a few chapters written, and I sort of had to put it down with the launch of a nest of snakes, but I want to go back to it. and um and then I think after that, I might go back to the Holocaust genre because, you know, I just feel so deeply and so passionately about telling Holocaust stories, um, especially in this social climate we're living in right now it's terrifying and um we just have to keep telling the stories
0: yeah well that that is a whole other discussion um so uh debbie uh is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners just thank you
1: really thank you for talking to me thank you for reading the book and um yeah, thanks for having me on. And and you know, as far as readers go, I love hearing from readers directly. There is an email form on my website. So email me. I love to get questions and comments and opinions. So yeah.
0: Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Deborah Levison. Her new book is A Nest of Snakes. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ayn, the author of the post-Holocaust novel, The Takeaway Man. The sequel, Shadows We Carry, will be published in April. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merilaine.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews love to read and read a good book.